Hey everyone, it's April 16th, 2017, and this is your episode 93 of Ep Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual are Laurel Black. Hi! And Megan Arns. Hello! Tracy Wiggins is here from the sublist. How's it going, Tracy? Yeah, it's going all right. And Ben Charles is feeling really sick, but maybe he can say hello, Ben. Hey everyone, I'm here. You sound, yeah, you sound <coughs> just fine. Nope. So I won't ask you how it's going and do that whole thing. Well, you guys, we have two guests today, and she is a percussionist and an assistant band director, as well as the creator of the Mid-Missouri Percussive Arts Trophy Competition. He is a name that you've certainly bumped into several times in your percussive lives, be it while reading percussive notes or doing research or even just listening to this podcast. I know he's been mentioned uh, at least at least twice so he's one of the percussion's most significant composers. So these are our friends, Raymond and Carol Helbel. How's it going? Going well. Hello. Yeah, great <laughs> to have you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you let us know a little bit what's happening uh, with you all lately? Well, why don't you talk about the impact you just had it about a month ago? Yes, and we just like thank you so much for inviting us to be on your podcast. We really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. How was MPAT? MPAT was wonderful. We just had our 10th um, annual MPAT. And uh, that's the, I, I know you said it was the Mid Missouri Percussion Arts Trophy. And it being the 10th anniversary, we had kind of some fun with our uh, time. We had Chi E. Wu as a guest artist. Um, James Doyle came in from Adams State University and in Colorado to adjudicate um, the non-traditional percussion category and we had Doug Smith in from Utah Valley University and uh, you know and then we also this year added a percussion duet competition on Friday and it was extremely successful and then we had um, guest percussion ensemble um, Truman State University with under the direction of Dr. Michael Bump Love Mike Bump. Right, Megan? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love well, Mike Bump. Saw him yesterday. Well, spe- speaking of James Doyle, he gave us a Facebook question. And I guess I want to say, Carol, I had a blast when I was your guest at MPAT, and I would just completely second what James is about to say and ask. It was just a really fantastic event and just really well done and a ton of kids from a wide area. So, yeah, big congrats on your 10th year. James. Yeah, you're welcome. James asks, let's see, he says, the fact you guys will be able to, were able to create an event essentially in the middle of rural Missouri is impressive and very inspiring and fills a void in the Midwest for marimba and percussion competitions. Perhaps some of the podcast audience would be interested in hearing how it came about and how and why others should do what you guys have done, regardless of where they are. Thanks for your podcast. Well, the initial beginning of MPAT um, started with in, uh, me wanting to, to my students at, at Lebanon High School, or in Lebanon schools, to see um, a famous percussion artist um, and, you know, get to have the benefit of seeing them in a master class or a clinic. And I was trying to figure out how to do that because Lebanon is kind of remote. It's about... Uh, you know, an hour north of Springfield, two, three hours south of St. Louis. 
Um, and so it was kind of difficult to get that many students, uh, you know, to see somebody like that. And so I started figuring out maybe what I could do is figure out a way to bring the artist here and find a way to fund that. And so that's, that's initially how it started. Um, so, you know, it, it's been a series of grant writing, local businesses participating by donating. And I was able to bring Lee Stevens the first year. Um, and then, of course, we also, in addition to them being there, um, we had a competition. The competition part um, was important to me because I wanted my students to see what their peers were doing. And so that gave an opportunity for them to see those peers playing and then some collegiate players, because we have a high school and a collegiate division. Um, it gave them a chance to see other people. And so they didn't kind of stay in the vacuum of our little rural community. Yeah, it's so impressive that you're able to do this, Carol. I mean, it's being a resident of Missouri and, you know, in the percussion scene here, it's something that all the collegiate students look forward to every year, and I'm sure high school students as well. And, you know, it doesn't matter, as the question said, you know, in the middle of rural Missouri, it doesn't matter, you know, like wherever wherever someone is working hard to make something happen, people will go there. <laughs> So, and I think that your festival is a testament to that because people come from all over Missouri and people come from outside of Missouri too, you know? So it's it really is something. And, and I, particularly, I'm always impressed how you're able to collaborate with and involve the universities as well, you know, partnering with universities and um, letting us be a part of your festival, which is a really a nice stage for us as well. So thanks well, for all your hard work. <laughs> Well, thank you. I, I would like, you know, a chance for our percussion community here in the Missouri and the Midwest to get the benefit of the guest artists while, while they're here. Um, and we have had students um, come from as far away as Boston, Massachusetts and, and the San Francisco area in California. So that's kind of the range of people that we've had to come visit and compete at MPAT. Well, it's interesting to say, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere, and maybe that's it's thought of like that right now because it's new. But you think of, say, Interlochen or Tanglewood, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere, you know, but nobody, but, you know, people think, oh, they're, oh, Interlochen, what a quaint little uh, amazing retreat in, in Michigan. So, I, I don't know, it's a... I, I'm sure with the growth of MPAD and just how successful it's been and all the people you bring, it's it's no doubt going to turn into exactly one of those. If you're bringing people down from Boston already, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's really a good thing. Well, we're fortunate in our community, you know, several years ago, our community has uh, built a civic center, um, which has a nice theater in it, um, you know, because I, I know when a lot of people hear civic center, they're not quite sure what that is, but luckily ours does have a really nice venue um, with a you know uh, nice nice stage and, and you know seating area. So we're very fortunate in, in a rural area that we have a facility um, you know that will hold up to this event. Yeah, sure, Laurel. I think you're going to ask a question for Raymond on behalf of Sick Ben. <laughs> 
<laughs> I am. Yeah, it's about uh, composition. So um, just knowing, Raymond, that you've written for Lee Howard Stevens and very recently for Theodore Milkov, Ben wants to wonder, or he wonders if there's a, a comparison between writing for the two virtuosos. Uh, they play differently. They have different techniques, and I had to become acquainted with them. Um, <clears throat> with Milkoff, it had to be uh, over, you know, Skype and through videos because he lives in Greece and visits Russia, and I don't do that very often. I don't, I don't get out of the house that much. So I mean, it's not likely that I'm going to be working with him back in ancient times i worked with stevens very closely to see what it was he was doing because he kept strong arming me into writing music for him to play um in those days now this is before your time but um the the big the big big star compositions that Rundus get got to play um were things like um oh the fissinger Sweet and some maybe some Bach transcriptions and uh, Bona etudes and the music that people play today, even on the high school level or even the advanced junior high, is music that 40 years ago could not have been played. Nobody would have known what to do if they looked at it. They would have just sort of rolled on the floor and laughed and pointed and said, "You're stupid. Go away." But. Uh, for Stevens, with his uh, Musser, or uh, I should say, uh, it's not a Musser grip, but it's his his take on it, was able to do things in terms of interval changes, etc., that other people just could not do until he started picking up on his technique. And um, Milkoff has, I don't know how it works, really, but he can play fast little scales up and down either diatonically or chromatically uh he can play more like a pianist plays and um so the, the piece for him was sort of sculpted for him to be able to play in a very um it, it was still hard he complained about it. it was hard but he said it was doable so doable to me means easy uh, because i don't have to do it but um, and uh, Stevens at first had trouble with the music I gave him, although it did follow the protocols that he showed me. But after a couple of months, he started playing the stuff and, and within a year or so started performing it. So there were different approaches to the two players who have extraordinary technical skills, but they have different technical skills. And um, that had to be taken into account. So, um, yeah, no, it, it's an interesting question. I had to actually sit down and think about it. Yeah. Has the, the piece you wrote for Theo, um, I know he was originally going to premiere that at PASIC, I think, but um, I don't think he played it. So has he premiered that? Uh, he's recorded it. It's oh, on okay. It's on Facebook. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, YouTube. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, his um, his uh, computer did automatic page turns. You know, you step on a 
you step on the little pedal and the page turns on the computer that's on your music stand. Right. So, actually, two premieres got uh, scotched that concert. Uh, Rude Wiener also had a piece that was supposed to be done. And um, he did not have time to totally memorize those pieces because um, he was also putting together his his uh, videos and his uh, summer camp and all that. But uh, he had had the piece since uh, late April, you know, the year, I mean, six, seven months before. So he had been working on it. He could play it technically, but he didn't have it all memorized. So that's, that's kind of a too bad. But Do you ever think something I'm faced with sometimes, okay, I'm going to write something for someone, and if that someone does do these freakishly cool, amazing technical things like Theo can do, you're almost a little hesitant to write it because you think, well, okay, he'll play it, and that's it. <laughs> like, who else is going to play this? Because <laughs> Theo's so good, you know what I mean? I don't know if you've ever gotten that feeling with, you know, writing for these virtuosic uh, frontier performers. Uh, yeah, no, no, that's an excellent question, and, and I was thinking about that. I'm saying, am I, waste- no, I don't mean wasting my time, but um, if you're a, a money writer, you, you think about those things like where can this piece go from, from, from Theo? Can, but as it turned out, a lot of people play. Well, maybe not a lot, but a, a significant number of people play the early preludes and uh, of mine uh, that were written for Stevens because they picked up on his technique. And I think people will pick up on Theo's technique. And so it may take a few years, but yes, other people should be able to play Pasakaya. Uh, and um, the other thing is, is that a lot of people buy it and they analyze these things. I get these emails or um, things in the mail from people doing either DMAs or uh, masters in performance, and they're writing a paper on like for me old pieces and ask me questions about something I wrote 40 years ago. Like I remember that Um, (laughs) because the thing is, is that if you write a lot, you're always going on to the next piece. And um, so I have to pull stuff up out of like dusty caverns and archives and Mm -hmm. what I meant by what, 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 how did I want bar 17 to sound you know, in a piece that I wrote in 1974 or something. <laughs> and so, um, but no, I, I, I have confidence that uh, with the, uh, the sharp and dramatic improvement of uh, keyboard playing that, that Theo's pieces is going to be doable probably within three, four, five years. Yeah, cool. Yeah, agree. That's a great answer. Well, we, you know, we covered a question from Ted Jackson and um, some from also one from Bill Rice. I wonder, Bill Rice asked, would you speak to his, oh, excuse me, would you speak about the early relationship with Lee Howard Stevens and the great works you wrote with Lee in mind? And I wonder if, if you could tag on any any personal relationship with Lee Stevens? Oh, that's kind of strange. Um, Steven, 
it was, um, well, you're talking Lee Stevens, you're going to talk strange. Um, <laughs> um, I, I knew him and I, I liked him personally in a way because he was very clever. He's a very clever man, very smart man, uh, very um, ambitious, and had a lot of ideas even as a freshman about not only playing but also designing instruments. And he was sitting and reading books on acoustics and what have you. And, um, <coughs> but I had no, pardon me, no interest whatsoever in writing for percussion. Okay. I want you to know, sitting there today, that Raymond Helbel had no interest in writing for percussion at all. Except for <laughs> Timothy Parts and Orchestra, but no. Is there a particular reason for that, Raymond? I just had no interest in it. I mean, yeah. they, I, it was just rat-a-tat, snare drum. It was just, the, the, the world of percussion is not, then, is not the world that you know at all. Sure, And yeah. uh, especially you younger folks. And, and of course, to me, all of you are younger folks. But um, Stevens uh, liked my music a lot. And, and, and I had wrote, and I've always been interested in developing techniques for writing in all different kinds of styles and manners. And he wanted things to fit his new technique to show it off. So I figured, okay, this will serve him right. I'll write serial music. I'll write him three prelude. And uh, everybody will hit it. And it'll go away and nobody will think about it again. And he'll, he won't bother me anymore. That didn't work out. Um, he wanted more. And uh, so a whole series of pieces, obviously, uh, came out, and he would take them on tour. And people would go, whoa, that's hard, <laughs> to say the least. And um, he would also give master classes on how you played these pieces. And this is going back now, 70s, early 80s. Then he wanted, and he took his uh, big concerto I wrote for him on tour which used the same kind of technique. And um, he, uh, he and I got along very, very well. But over the course of years, we've, we've just gone different directions altogether. He's got more and more into the business of the design and marketing of his instruments. And um, that's something I have no particular dog in that fight. I, I, don't, I have no idea about the best way to design an instrument. So um, we 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 uh, are, are still you know friendly and and, and converse, but he's uh, uh, publishers and I have a uh, you know standing up for anything I send he will publish, but I make sure it's uh, you know the highest quality I can produce. But uh, so um, yeah. The, the thing with Stevens was very interesting, and he was sort of a friendly, and I want to emphasize friendly rival, with Gordon Stout. Because in those days at Eastman, you would not believe what John Beck had attracted to the studio. He had Lee Stevens, he had Gordon Stout, he had Bob Becker, who was a, a grad student. He had John Serry, who's now a jazz pianist, but a phenomenal percussionist. Um, uh, just a whole bunch of people. And um, 
all of whom were very likable and very clever, by the way. Um, the the rap on percussion players were they they were sort of the the dumb guys in music next to sopranos. Okay, <laughs> sopranos. I I don't even talk about them, but um, oh, <laughs> I, I, Raymond, being, I'm a soprano. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> guys were very clever and they were doing clever things. And they, they were the guys who were sort of instrumental in getting that first PASIC thing done at, in Rochester. And I was very impressed with the, the, uh, the uh, desire and the drive and the focus of, of putting together percussion in a kind of a new way. That new music new techniques, new styles, new presentations. And I finally got kind of sucked up into it after I had started out having no desire whatsoever to do anything with it. And um, so uh, you had Gordon, who was did not use Lee's technique, but uh, had a phenomenal gift. Uh, he has his own grip and everything like that. But... Uh, what Stevens was doing started to catch on, at least in terms of moving that instrument into a uh, a new era, really, of of, of performance capabilities. So uh, we had a what I would call a fruitful relationship. Yeah, great. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Excellent. What do you got there, Tracy? Um, yeah, so you were talking about the early works when you were working with Stevens and everything, and obviously a lot of the people that are listening are going to know works like Diabolic Variations and stuff like that. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned when we were discussing before we started an interest in starting to write for percussion in chamber music more, um, and outside of just percussionists playing with percussionists, but fitting in with other instruments and everything. And you talked about how in the early days, it was sort of the rat-a-tat-tat background drumming and everything and how it's developed over time. So I was interested to hear how that development and everything has piqued your interest into incorporating percussion and especially marimba into other chamber music ensembles. Um, the way I look at it, and other people may see it in other ways, is that uh, we'll look at a very standard piece of um, uh, a chamber ensemble, the piano quartet or the piano quintet, the string quartet and piano or string quintet and piano or what have you. Um, use the marimba as a keyboard instrument. Okay, not, don't think percussion, think keyboard. Melodic, harmonic, rhythmic capabilities, just like any other keyboard instrument. And um, write for that with a string quartet, write for that with woodwind quintet, write for that with a mixture of, let's say, uh, now I have a piece for um, string quartet, bassoon, and marimba, which is really beautiful. I, I like it. And I don't talk about my music in a, in a self-laudatory way normally, but if you know you have a good one, you have a good one. Um, a piece called Darkwood for string trio, clarinet, and marimba. And that uh, has been done and, and 
is very well received. And uh, I have a piece called Silverwood for um, flute and marimba. It's a duo written for the bumps. I don't think they've played it, but um, but I'm a fan of the bumps. So you got to write for them, yeah. <laughs> and um, and I have some other ideas, and plus new uh, concerto material. I there's without saying specifically like don't like any particular work. I'm generally not enthusiastic about a lot of the remember concerti I've heard, and I think I can I can I can do a job at bringing some of that kind of ensemble writing to a, 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 a new level. I might, I'm not talking about it too much because I don't talk about things that are in progress. Because I, I learned long ago that that can lead to embarrassing disasters, but there might be a Milkoff concerto in the works, something you can think about, dream about, have nightmares about. <laughs> but, uh, Yes, uh, I already have some things, and Tracy, if you want, I'll send you some stuff. That would be great. If you're well-behaved. Well, I can't promise that, but... Well, either can I. (laughs) Um, Tracy, if you want, you can forward that stuff on to me. Okay. (laughs) And then we can sell it on the internet for a dollar? Right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I had one follow-up. So when you're writing for like the marimba and stuff in these contexts, you know, when you're writing for it with like string trio and things, like, are you writing for the marimba kind of taking the role that piano often would in those sorts of ensembles, or how has that affected your um, your marimba writing? Um, my marimba writing in general, okay. Now the Milkoff piece doesn't count for this. Has has actually gotten somewhat easier it's gotten a little bit less loony i mean as far as just stretching every possible parameter um it's uh it's made to be playable by more people and yes to answer your question it takes the place of the piano or harpsichord or what you know any other keyboard instrument adds it in, but it has to fold in. And the idea is that the percussionist learns to correlate his work, the work he does, with what the string players are doing, the wind players are doing. He learns about what they're doing. They learn about what he's doing. And as far as I see, assuming music is good, and I will attest to the fact that I think it is, of course, composers can be wrong and never trust composers when they talk about their own works because they're often just full of beans. But I'm bet, assuming that it's uh, good work, it's it's a win-win for everybody. The thing is to get people who are not percussionists to want to work with percussionists because they think it's going to be all bang-bang. They, they, they're still a group... <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> we think I caught something from Ben. Um, um, who, who Every week. Yeah. 
associate percussion with like the noisemakers. No, uh, not like that at all. You've heard Milkoff play early classical music, high baroque music, and you know that he doesn't play that way. And uh, a good player with a lot of control can blend right in with those other instruments, blend support. He can be the leading voice, can be an accompanying voice. Uh, the musical challenges should be very great, but the technical challenges can be pared back so that it's more practical for more players. So, um, I, I think that once the stuff gets around, you find it interesting. That's that's my opinion. Um, no, I was just going to say I've been fortunate enough to be in two chamber duos, one marimba and violin, very much um, like marimba Lynn with Nancy Zeltzman. And uh, the other is a marimba piano duo that's much more recent, but it... Um, I feel like I really have a, a a similar feeling to you, Raymond, especially when it comes to marimba, just because as percussionists, it's almost like we pick either we're going to get really good at one thing or we're going to be the kind of person whose performance is very impressive because we were willing to set up stuff for three hours and then tear it down for three hours, which... Um, is not me. And I think there are enough people that really love that part of percussion. How am I going to set it up? How am I going to build this that I don't have to be one of those people? Um, but yeah, something I've become really passionate about with my piano partner is the idea of duo sonatas, especially for marimba. It seems like we get, uh, you know, a piece with one other instrument, but they're, they're just kind of one-offs if that makes sense and I feel like all the other solo instruments have these this genre of the duo sonata with piano and percussion doesn't quite have that yet and the pieces that we do have typically require you to set up so much um, that the nuance that the pianist will have because they play that one instrument is you notice a difference in how the percussionist has to approach things um, because we're trying to play so many things. And yeah, I'm, I'm, have you thought about that concept of a duo sonata between marimba and piano? Is that something you would be interested in? Do you think it will work? I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think it can certainly work, but I have to be honest. I've never been fond of the marimba piano duo from a, an acoustical point of view because they're not really in tune. Um, and consequently, that just sort of irritates me because I have a pretty decent ear. And um, it's, uh, I'm not saying it's not worth doing, Don't. I'm, but I'm just saying I've never cared for that combination. Now, of course, if you walk up to me with a sack of gold coins and say, write me this, it'll be written. But, um, on my own, or unless it's unless somebody commissions it, I probably wouldn't do it on my own. Um, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's a very, very good idea, and I think Rundus need to play with as many different people as possible. However, I will tell you a very good combination because there's more control over the pitch for the uh, 
other keyboard player is marimba and harpsichord. Think about that. Now, they may not be practical, but the harpsichord can just take out a key and go right up and down the scale, you know, with the, uh, with the marimba, which the, its pitches are fixed, okay, um, unless you have a sander handy. Uh, and it can, it can get right, you know, you, you, you can get right on the razor's edge of, uh, of the pitch. We wear the piano doesn't they they sort of tune in different ways so but uh yeah i think the idea of uh, commissioning or getting people to write that is, is 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 a good idea fundamentally it's just piano and marimba is a combination I, i'm not particularly enthusiastic about but marimba and anything else is short of bagpipes or something um, i'm 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 uh, eager to explore. Well, by the way, I, I want to clear something up uh, that uh, the impact about impact. I have essentially nothing to do with this. This is all Carol's idea, all her planning, all her fundraising, all of her monumental organization. And it's one of the most organized things I've ever seen. It's sort of like a, a musical version of a high-quality hospital operating room. I mean, everything is just, you know, clippity-clop. Everything runs right on schedule to the minute. And the uh, people who have performed there, and Casey, you, uh, you probably noticed this yourself, there's a lot of discipline in the way it's put together. Uh, uh, the only thing I do is hand out trophies and introduce the artist. It is, it is just really fantastic, Carol. It's It's... Uh, yeah, an amazing thing you've done. Well, thank you. We do have a question for Carol from Matt Henry, another buddy in Missouri. Uh, he's okay. got one for Raymond and one for Carol, so I'll do the one for Carol first. And he asks, what's the story with your huge drum made from a barrel at the Stave factory in Lebanon? <laughs> okay. So uh, there is a company in Lebanon, Missouri. It's the Independent Stave uh, Company. And they make uh, barrels that, uh, you know, they that are made to hold, like, whiskeys and other alcoholic beverages. And so, uh, a couple of years ago, the Lebanon band did a, um, a marching show called Ninja. And so, we decided we, we wanted to have some sort of taiko drum represent, representation there. So, we... Um, got the stave mill to uh, give us two of their barrels, two of their whiskey barrels. And uh, these are, by the way, very expensive. You buy them, I think they're like above a thousand bucks a piece. And uh, so some of my band dads at Lebanon took these whiskey barrels and we converted them into taiko drums. And uh, just so you know, if you have a whiskey barrel taiko drum, it requires a 24-inch bass drum ahead. Um, in case you're just, you know, making some of those in your backyard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just took some, uh, we had some old, uh, like, I think, you know, rusted out Slingerland marching bass drums. And we took the hardware off of them and mounted them on these whiskey barrels and made taiko drums out of them. And then, uh, not too far from Lebanon, there's a 
uh, a company that makes like uh, uh, trailers for boats. I don't know if you're aware of this in Lebanon. A lot of uh, recreational boats and such pontoons, bass boats are made in Lebanon. So they actually custom made uh, drum stands for us on uh, that were on like a large wheel so we could take them on marching band. So that's that's the uh, I guess origin of the whiskey barrel taiko drums that we have here in Lebanon. Good job, Matt Henry. Always can count on him. Nice. Yay. Yeah. You can always count on him to find out where they're making whiskey barrels. That's right. <laughs> well, his other question is for Raymond, and he says, For Raymond, who do you see as an innovator in percussion composition? Composition. Um, oh, I almost want to take a pass on that because I don't want to leave anybody out who I think sure. is an innovator. I'm not. To me, innovation is overused and less important than quality. Okay, mm -hmm. I, I'm more interested in quality. If I were to say composers, I think who are really good quality composers, and I'm going to leave everybody here out of the picture just to keep it impersonal. I'd say people sure. like David Gillingham. I'd say people like Eric Wazin. Um. Uh, David Mislanka. Um, there's, of course, the lovely and talented me, but uh, oh, yeah. who, who needs to mention that? Um, we, we just had David you know, Mislanka here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He can write a good piece when he's really up for it. Um, uh, Gordon Stout has some good people now everybody knows him from the mexican dances and beads of glass and all that stuff he has got a handful of unfortunately under underrepresented um uh percussion orchestra type pieces that are quite good that need to be explored more and um while i'm not uh a total um, fan of every note that he ever wrote. I am a fan of his percussion ensemble music for sure, because he has very interesting ideas and you can hear the development of those ideas and he knows how to put them together. So I like that innovative. Mm, I don't know. Uh, I know, I know, I know Casey, you've done some things that are a little out of the box. That, that work. But I think that it's much more important both for the art and for the performer and for the audience that rather than trying to do things that are different. Now, if you hear the things differently and you're expressing them, that's one thing. <laughs> but too many composers in my experience, which is long, um, try to do things that are different to be different per se. And, and more often than not, I find that that does not work. Okay. You, you, it, 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 uh, let, let me give you an analogy. You have guys like Brahms and Bruckner writing music. Okay. And they're 
we were going back to the late 19th century. But at the same time, you have Claude Debussy. Okay. He's doing something different. And a lot of people say, oh, he's so brave, he's breaking rules. Nonsense. It's not what he's doing. He's making new rules to fit the music that he hears in his head. And that's not the same as, I'm going to go do something different. I'm going to go be innovative. It's, I'm going to express these ideas that I think are important, and it requires a different technical vocabulary. And there's a difference between, I'm going to be different, and I have these ideas, but I have to abandon some old ones, and I have to embrace some new ones and correlate them in such a way that I can still make art. And um, so I, I generally don't think of pieces of importance as being either innovative or old-fashioned or somewhere in between. I think of them as how well technically are they put together, how interesting is the material, um, does the audience get some positive uh, some positive reaction out of listening to it? Do the performers learn from playing and working on these parts? I'm a strong believer in to, that time is life. When you make an audience sit and listen to a, let's say, 10-minute piece, you're taking 10 minutes that they'll never get back. So you better make it good. Whether it's new or old in terms of technique and you're taking many hours, countless hours away from the people who are learning to play this, you owe them doing the best possible job. If it means I'm going to do something new and different that nobody's done before, fine. But just make sure it's really worth it. And um, so... The innovative aspect to me is is secondary or tertiary to quality. So that's the way I would answer that. I think that's a great answer. I, I've, I've actually said the exact same thing. People try, and especially young composers, try so hard to do something new. And I wonder if it's the fault of uh, our education. We always look at the people who did something new and we just point out, hey, this was new. This was the first time this was done. You can almost just go through the, you know, the Norton anthology of scores and just point out the new little thing that comes along. And, you know, we've just been told new is better. New makes new is what makes you significant. And whatever is different, whether it's good or not, different is what matters. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love what you said. That's I've said the same thing. Well, that's why you love what I said, because you said the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, well, Matt Henry also put education on there, so innovators in composition. But are there any you or Carol view who are innovative in education as well? I, I have a definite feeling about, actually, Matt Henry himself. I think he does a phenomenal job of presenting world music in a way that's not as a, a novelty is a serious tradition or a series of serious traditions and this elevates what I think he's doing and elevates the understanding of people that there are different artistic traditions 
and I know he's very serious about being uh, on point about not mixing and matching instruments that don't belong together. And I know, and I've seen him talk about it. And which the first time I went to see him, I didn't think I was going to be interested, but I figured, okay, let's try it out. And I was absolutely hooked by the way he teaches. So I put Matt Henry at the top of that list as far as people I know. Okay, which is not a whole lot, but he does an excellent job. I oh. loved what I learned about him on our when we interviewed him. <laughs> yeah. It's one of it's one of my favorite things about doing this show is it really, you know, gives me a kick every week to really research someone twice, once when we introduce them and then a second time when I edit. And uh, I knew I knew Matt a little bit, but I didn't know him well enough to, you know, um, yeah, I learned a lot. Well, I, um, you know, I kind of feel the same way about innovation and education, the way Raymond does about innovation and composition. Um, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of somebody trying to reinvent a wheel that's all, already working just fine. You know, for instance, you know, who's going to, what's going to be the upgrade on stick control? You know, the book. You know, that, that sort of thing. I, I, I feel like, um, you know, in, in my teaching, I, I teach 6th through 12th grade uh, percussion. And that's all I teach. I don't, I don't teach a general band class or, or anything like that. Um, but I, I really feel like fundamental techniques are fundamental techniques. You know, there are new innovations as far as, you know, I'm, when, you know, Stevens came out with his new version of, of grip from marimba those are things that are improvements but i think those are far and few between few and far between yeah and well you know <laughs> clearly your program is successful i have two of carol's students in my program or one that just graduated and one that just did her junior recital and they're amazing students and they're always finalists at empat and you know going to college for several of them going to college for music and yeah super strong program so you're doing great things down there carol well thank you one of the great benefits i've i've had of having um impact in my in my neighborhood here is i've had a chance to meet a lot of great percussionists uh some present company in, included here <laughs> uh, you know and gotten gotten to know a lot of things and um you know, fresh perspectives about people. But, uh, you know, for instance, this last year, you know, we had Xi Wu visiting, and uh, we were talking about students that, you know, would apply to study with her. And, you know, one of the things she mentioned was if the student can't play snare drum very well, they're, uh, they're probably not going to make it into her program. You know, so what she's expressing is you, you have to have these fundamentals. It doesn't matter how well you play keyboard or if you can play, you know, uh, whatever big keyboard pieces, you know, on the slate at the, at the moment. Um, it, to her, it was, did they have solid snare drum technique? And I think a lot of people probably don't realize that when they go audition for colleges. But those fundamentals are very important. Mm -hmm. But I'm yeah. talking, speaking to the choir here, so, so. Well, and speaking of True the choir, that. the chat the chat window is blowing up with uh, all our frustrations about 
reinventing education and oh you know there's a push to incorporate technology and how we're using technology or having them do all these new things that are further outside the box when really we just want them to get good at (laughs) fundamentals so you know um yeah i don't know there's almost encouragement to go off track and i i don't know why that's a good idea when it's increasingly more and more competitive out there well, you know technology is fine what it enhances what you're doing you know yeah. uh but I, I, it as itself just to add to to add to whatever perceived dog and pony show is supposed to happen um i mean i use uh you know some technology in my classroom but i would tell you that 95 percent of it is just basic um, you know, learning how to master snare drumming keyboard skills in the early, you know, in the early years. Um, and just trying to make sure that I get a quality product. I'm trying to produce a student that can walk into a, co- a collegiate program and not feel intimidated by it. That That's my goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a yeah. good goal. Hmm. Hey, well, to break things up just a little bit, Megan, I think you have a segment today, right? I do. I wanted to talk a little bit about summer percussion festivals um, now that we're approaching the summer summer season. Um, And I chose three of them that I I am most familiar with that I've had students go to or attended myself. Um, and so you all might have something to add to these as well. But I thought I'd just give a little bit of information about each of those three, um, kind of my top three that I recommend to students. I put them in order of the dates which they happen in the summer. So the first one is the Neef North Summer Festival. And it takes place June 12th through 26th. Uh, it's located at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville in the Natalie L. Haslam Music Center and actually started at Furman University. I was an intern there um, back in the early days of the festival. And it's not just for percussionists. It's an interdisciplinary summer music festival. Uh, It includes performers, composers, and scholars coming together to collaborate on performance creation and discussion of contemporary music. It offers an immersive think tank environment. And there are seven to eight concerts that happen throughout the course of this festival. And the mission is to encourage both appreciation for live music and support for contemporary art. So you've got three basic programs you can apply for. The performance program, the composition program, and the research summit. This year, the research summit topic is music and minimalism. The faculty is giant. (laughs) I'll list them. Um, Not giant, but big. Andrew Bliss is the artistic director and percussion uh, percussion teacher. Obviously, he's a guest was a guest of the podcast uh, Allison Adams saxophone Christopher Adler composition program director Lisa Cella flute guest artists Randy Gibson Russell Hartenberger Andrea Lee Andrea Loge Mark Mel- uh, Mark Mellitz and Nina C Young are the composers in residence um, other Neef North members um, are Carrie O'Brien research director in percussion Mike Truesdell percussion and then a few other instrumentalists Jay Source guitar and Ashley Waters on cello. So, you know, a really collaborative environment there. Um, Lots of concerts, workshops, presentations, rehearsals. Um, 
yeah, really, really, really awesome festival. What is that? Two weeks, the twelfth and the twenty sixth. Um, so yeah, that's neat. North Summer Festival. Check it out. The site. Also, you know, this is probably it's probably too late. I didn't look at application dates because I think they've all passed for now. But this is to bring awareness for to kind of know that this is happening this summer and keep it on your radar for next summer. Next one is the Chosen Vale International Percussion Seminar from July 3rd through 15th. It's located at the Center for Advanced Musical Studies in Hanover, New Hampshire, and it's actually Enfield Shaker property. So it's very in a, it's a rural area, and the campus is uh, consists of a lot of old historic buildings. So your your lesson with um, Glenn Kochi might be in the in the stone mill or something, and you might have lunch in the um let me see actually let me get these names here They're, you've got the stone mill the mary keen chapel the west brethren shop and the laundry and dairy building so you might have a lesson with cynthia in the laundry and dairy building <laughs> um but i've heard that it's just a very peaceful environment and it really allows you to focus on on um, on the people around you and the music that you're making so the faculty for this year is Keith Aleo, Michael Burrett, Pedro Carnero, Amy Garapik, Tim Feeney, Russell Hartenberger, Ivan Trevino, and Doug Perkins is on faculty and is also the artistic director of this seminar. The format of it is uh, master classes, chamber concerts, and private lessons. So I think they've got it set up where you have a few, few, uh, you kind of have a block of of times where you can practice or visit Cynthia Ye or Pedro Carnero in the dairy building and have a lesson. Um, and everyone comes together for ma master classes. You also have rehearsals with the faculty to put on these chamber concerts. So coaching by some of the, the top uh, chamber percussion players and teachers in the country. So high reviews on that one as well. And the third one is the Soap Percussion Summer Institute from July 16th through 30th. The faculty is so percussion themselves, and similar to Neef North, they have a composition program as well. And the com the guest composer this year is Andrea Mazzarello. Am I saying that right? Does anyone know? We'll go with it. But it's located in Princeton University uh, on the campus, and they often take field trips to New York. I think last year they went to Lincoln Center to see a Steve Reich concert. Um, this year, the highlights are the beginnings of the 20th century percussion ensemble repertoire. So there's a focus on composers like John Cage, Lou Harrison, and others. They're going to prepare new pieces from Princeton composers, as well as the composition program participants uh, all have a performance, will have a performance of the work that they create there. Also lessons, masterclasses and coachings with renowned composers and performers, performances around Princeton, readings by so percussion of student composer pieces, etc. And the overview of that is um, for the or their mission for this year is early percussion composers like John Cage imagined a world of organized sound where music consisted of more than just keyboard tones. For SOCI 2017, we will dig back into those first steps towards the modern percussion ensemble. Immerse yourself in the radical ideas that started it all. So I think that these three also, these three festivals also represent, you know, pretty different geographic location as well as all 
different faculty members. I think the only person that overlapped was Russell Hardenberger was on Chosen Vale and Neef Norf, um, as well as a little bit different format for each of them. Some of them focus on more concerts, like Neef Norf has seven to eight concerts in these two weeks, while Chosen Vale, I think there's two concerts. So it's a little, um, a little more spread out. So yeah, check out the summer festivals. Have you any of you attended either of these three or had students attend them or have any favorite summer festivals of your own? Not those ones you named. I've had I have had a student go to the So <laughs> Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Caleb. You guys have seen Caleb on the show. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's done that one. And we have one who's talking about going to the Sandbox one because we just had the mm-hmm. Sandbox guys here. We just cool. had we just had this awesome rush of guest artists. Uh, like I mentioned, David Maslanka. We had Gordon Stout just here and the Sandbox guys as well. So it's just funny. We had just mentioned those people and I yeah. just just saw them. But uh, two of ours are going to TAPS, Ted Akat's Percussion mm-hmm. Seminar. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, Laurel and I have taught there before and that's, that's really, really fun. Yeah. We also had one looking some- into the NYU Broadway yeah, seminar. Yeah. I have a for that out, out of my office door. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Um, the other one I would add that I went to and loved was ZMF, which is happening yeah. this year yes. in July. And I think registration is still open. Um, Where's the location 18. for this year? It's at Rutgers. So it's in New Jersey this year. Uh, yeah, I pulled it up here just really quickly. <laughs> yeah, they'll have eight concerts over two weeks. You just need to be 18 in order to go and registration's open. Mm-hmm. There's a JMU summer camp. Ben went to it when he was a kid. <laughs> nice. He's and of nodding. course, Lee Harris Stevens camp. There's, There's a sick so puppy chamber. I think last year around this time, I read through kind of the rhythm scene list. I thought it'd be yeah. nice to kind of go in depth into a, just a few this time. But of course, there are so many summer festivals that are, are worth checking out. So I thought we'd get around to, we're kind of getting towards the end of the show here. I thought we'd get around to another question for Raymond. And I've got one here on Facebook from Robbie Green. He says, let me start by saying that the Diabolic Variations is one of my favorite works for percussion ensemble. I understand its form and all the variations. However, I've always wanted to ask if there were any personal items, connections, or hidden jewels in the piece that maybe the composer only would know. Also, are there any personal memories that come to mind in the process of composing this piece or during its first performances? Uh, Yeah, that's a very important piece for me because, believe it or not, at that point, uh, I had been uh, somewhat, I had been, I had been very ill for a while and being somewhat depressed about uh, pursuing music. And I had decided to quit writing altogether. And I got a phone call from Richard Gibson at OU, uh, uh, University of Oklahoma Press, and he asked for a piece. And I said, okay, all right, let's see what we can do. All right, I'll try this one more time. Okay. And um, I got involved in the work, and I wanted to write something that had a very strict kind of formal aspect to it, yet was sort of 90% tonal, but a little modal. And I came up with all kinds of ideas of what I wanted to do to make it just a little different, but pretty much the same. And... uh, the composition of it was turned out to be kind of fun. I enjoyed writing it, writing for the first time in, in a while. 
And um, it changed my attitude, and I said, maybe I won't quit writing. Hmm. That, that piece was like, what, 83, 84, 85, somewhere in there. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 the piece is very important. As far as anything in the piece is tricky, I don't recall other than some some you know you know contrapuntal stunts and tricks but i mean that's on the page but uh personally yeah it's a very important piece wow and very cool I, I, we, we owe the fact that i'm sitting here talking to you richard gibson wow cool yeah it's a it's a beautiful piece i would like to do it i'm not sure when they last did it here i know they've done it but um i if it was long enough ago i'd certainly love to do it again yeah i was soon. just thinking the exact same thing yeah yeah well um last little question i guess it's kind of technology related also from robbie green he says i remember seeing your profile on facebook this is for raymond a few years back and thought it was a fan page however when i discovered it was really the composer mm -hmm. i was pretty impressed that you have put yourself on social media unlike many composers of your generation has anything changed for you as a composer being more socially connected to performers of your work uh I don't think anything radically has changed. <coughs> I have somehow gathered like a snowball rolling down a hill with thousands of Facebook friends, which I didn't know. Found out that people all, all over Asia and Europe have copies of one work of mine or another, and uh, which surprised me. I had no idea of the of the interest and which is actually humbling but um um no in fact i have to update my my uh my official web page it's badly out of date i have to add a whole bunch of new pieces um and i have uh there are pieces that are maybe three four five years old that aren't even on there so i i have to i have to do something about that I've never been terribly good about attending to the business end uh, of of uh, the, the composition, but uh, I'm trying to get better at it now. So uh, over this next summer and early fall, I'm going to be trying to set up a uh, a, uh, a whole series of school, uh, you know, visits to schools, and also uh, I'm going to put myself out even more as far as getting performances from some uh, uh, some some major players for pieces I think they might be interested in. Of course, we'll find out. But. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you'll have a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. Hey, well, everyone, thanks so much for joining us on episode 93. Th those of you who asked questions, I know we didn't quite get to everyone, but thanks so much for your questions. Please keep sending them our way. And man, the Hevels, thanks so much for joining us. You guys are just wonderful and congrats on everything you've both done and are doing. It's really great to catch up with y'all. Well, thank you very much for inviting us and everybody please come to MPAT next year on March 2nd and 3rd. Um, yeah, please come to MPAT. It was really, yeah. really great. Who's your artist next year? Ji uh, Hei Jung. Oh, yeah. Yes, you guys got to go. Vanderbilt. And um, the University of Missouri Percussion. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Thank you and so much for inviting us, Carol. Did, it's really did special. A great job, great job, Casey. If anybody's ever going to cast a pod at me, 
I want it to be you. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get around to this in our spare time. So much spare time. Hey, yeah. well, Laurel, Megan, Ben, Tracy, thanks so much. And thanks. Carol and Raymond, yeah. you guys have a good one. We'll catch you on 94. So, all right. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.